This year's climatic theme of the 74th annual uh, Church of Christ National Lectureship, the theme is Runners to Your Mark, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 to 2. That is the climatic theme that has been selected and all of the workshop presenters and all of the, uh, the lecturers have labored uh, climatically or anticlimatically relative to that theme, Runners to Your Mark. What I want to do this afternoon is get beneath the theme and anticlimactic to the general theme. I want to invite your attention for just a few moments to the fourth chapter of the book of Hebrews. And Dr. Brothers, I want to, to beg of you to give me this opportunity to take this, uh, this liberty because I gave you the wrong subject and the wrong text. And I'm not going to preach the one I gave you and I'm not going to come from the text I gave you. I'm going to give another sermon. It's going to be the same about the same person. Come on with me to Hebrews chapter 4, and I'm going to commence reading at verse 14 and terminate at verse 16. I'm going to read it from the King James translation. Seeing then, we have a great high priest that has passed into the heavens, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our profession. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For a few moments, and I won't take long this afternoon, I want to talk to you from the subject, our great high priest. Our great high priest. Now, this is Wednesday of the lectureship, and it goes without saying that those that have preceded me have already done a masterful job at giving you the cultural and the historical backdrop to the book of Hebrews. There are some things that I do not have to expend a tremendous amount of time. Brethren, I've already told you about the ambiguity associated to the authorship of the book of Hebrews, and some have argued based on internal and external evidence for Paulus, for Clement of Alexandria, for the Apostle Paul, for John Mark, for Barnabas, for a number of brethren. And so I'm going to bypass that and tell you what I absolutely, positively, unequivocally know, regardless of the internal and the external evidence relative to the book of Hebrews. One thing I do know is that it was written by the Holy Spirit. Second of all, I don't have to spend a lot of time delineating the date of this epistle because it's evident that it was written somewhere between A.D. 33 and A.D. 69. Now, I say that because Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3 starts out by telling us that Jesus Christ is already seated on the right hand of the throne of the majesty on high. That means that the death, burial, resurrection, and now the ascension of Jesus has already taken place. Second of all, it is intricately interesting to me how that every single mention of of the temple is always in the present tense, which means the temple has not been destroyed in A.D. 70, so I know this letter was written somewhere between A.D. 33 and A.D. 69. You already know the fact that there was a small community of Jews who have been Hellenized outside or in and around the area of Jerusalem. You already know that this is a time of intense persecution, but the paramount problem is that while one group of these Jews have abdicated Judaism, they have not come all the way to Jesus Christ. While there is another who has converted to New Testament Christianity and have walked away from Judaism, but because of the persecution, they're being encouraged to fall back 
and the return to Judaism. Here's what I want you to see, ladies and gentlemen. By the time we get to Hebrews chapter 4, what you have is an invitation to salvation. This invitation to salvation is twofold. It starts in chapter uh, 3 and verse 7 and go, goes all the way to chapter 4 and verse 13. And it's a, both a negative invitation and a positive invitation. The negative invitation goes something like this. Listen, the last thing in the world that you want to do is be like your forefathers. God released them from the flesh pots of Egypt land. They left the rigor and punishment of Egypt, and, but they did not enter into Canaan's rest. Why? Because of unbelief. And so the last thing that you want to do is to fall victim of unbelief like your forefathers who were released from bondage but did not go all the way to Canaan. You need to know that your carcasses are going to be lost if you don't accept the salvation which is in Christ Jesus, his superior law and his superior provisions. And then there is a positive, because you know what, brethren, Christianity is not just about negative invitation. This is not simply merely about obeying the gospel of Jesus Christ so we can stay out of hell. Now that's a very pertinent and prevalent part of the gospel message. But it is not the only contingency connected to Christianity. Not only is this, uh, 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 is this a negative invitation, but look at the blessings that we receive as a result of being in covenant with Christ Jesus. So the tone of the letter changes from chapter 3 all the way to chapter 4 and verse 13 where it is a negative part of an invitation to salvation and then the positive part of the invitation to salvation starts and what he wants him to know are two paramount things. Here is his paramount line of argumentation in chapter 4 and verse 14 part B. Let us hold fast our faith. Part one of the invitation. Part two of the invitation is recorded in chapter four, verse 16, part B, when he says, come boldly unto the throne of grace. So here's the two-part invitation. Number one, let us hold fast our profession. Perhaps you profess that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Perhaps you have revealed the intellectual and acknowledged the intellectual fact that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Now hold on to that profession. It may not be everything that you need to do. There, be, may, need to be, there may be more that needs to be done, but what you do is you hold on. At least you've come that far. You've come that far. Now hold on to the profession of your faith. But you need to come further you need to go all the way to Jesus so with the profession of your faith what you do is you come boldly unto the throne of grace so there are three features that make Jesus Christ not just a high priest but the point in this context is that he is a great high priest he is a great high priest because of his perfect priesthood. Second of all, because he's the perfect person. And third of all, he offers the perfect provisions. 
Look at verse 4, and I'll be through here in just a moment. The Bible says, seeing then that we have a great high priest that has passed into the heavens. Who is he? Jesus, the Son of God. As a result of that, let us hold fast our faith. Point number one, he is uh, the perfect priest or offers the perfect priesthood. And here's the reason. Because he has passed into the heavens. That word in, in the original Greek language, is an interesting word. It is the Greek word dia, and it's better translated through. He's passed through the heavens. Second of all, I want you to notice that the word heavens is in the plural, which means more than one. Jesus Christ is a great high priest because he has passed through the heavens. It's always been interesting to me that under the Levitical priesthood, if you go back to Leviticus chapter 16 and read all of the contingency of responsibilities, that they had to walk through three areas in order to perform their duty and responsibility. They had to walk through the Gentile outer court, they had to walk through the place before the veil, and then they had to walk behind the veil, and they were restricted as to the amount of time that they had because they can only do it on, on the Day of Atonement, and they they had to get inside, perform their responsibilities, and get out because if they did not, they would die. They had to pass through three areas. Jesus, however, is a great high priest, and so he doesn't pass through three areas. He passes through three heavens. The first heaven, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse number 2, he passed through the heavens where the birds fly. He passed then through the heavens where the stars are. And then finally, he gets to the celestial city. He does as the priest does. And thank God he didn't just have 24 hours to do it. Jesus Christ performed the duty and the responsibility because he did not have to come back year after year after year after year after year after year. That's why Jesus is not just a high priest. He's a perfect high priest. Second of all, I want to suggest to you he's a perfect high priest because he is Jesus, the Son of God, which means he's the perfect person. I want you to see here that Jesus is his human name. Son of God is his divine name. He's the perfect person because he's Jesus, human Son of God or God the Son, divine. That makes him the perfect high priest because he knows what it is to be human. He knows what it is to tabernacle in the flesh. He knows what it is to stroll through heaven. He knows what it is to sit down on the right hand of the throne of the majesty on high. He's had the challenges of man and he's witnessed the glory, uh, the Shekinah glory of God in heaven. He's been on the human and the divine side. Not only is he a perfect priest, he's the perfect person. Now because a perfect priest is the perfect person, then here's what happens. The Bible says uh, we have not a high priest who cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities just because he's a perfect person. And the reason why Jesus can be touched with the feeling of our infirmities is because he knows what it is to be in the mortal flesh. 
He knows what it is to be on the time side of life. I'm so glad that I serve a Lord that can be touched with the feeling of my infirmities because he's been 100% man and he's been 100% God and therefore he has a divine perspective and at the same time he has a human perspective. He knows what it is to be tempted, to be tried, to go through toil, to go through tribulation, to, issue, to experience disappointment, to experience hurt. Jesus knows all about that. I'm so glad that this thing is not just based on my ability to walk right, talk right, sing right, pray right. I, I'm so glad that it's not just based on a, a meritorious system where I must rack up brownie points of holiness and righteousness. No, I have a high priest and he's a great high priest because he knows the feeling of my infirmities. Yes, let, me, let me put it to you this way. Jesus knows the feeling of our infirmities is a powerful statement. Let, let me use this illustration. It's like pain. I want you to know that all of us have a different pain threshold. Uh, you may be able to sustain more pain than I can sustain. But the fact of the matter is the human body is designed in such a way that all of us can only sustain so much pain. And when we hit our pain threshold, one or two things happen. Either our bodies go into shock to shut down our any more feeling of pain, or we pass out. And so we pass out, or the body goes into shock so that we cannot feel any more pain. And I want to tell you something, temptation is the same way. We can only stand so much temptation. And before long, uh, we're going to surrender before we get to the point where we just keep holding on and holding on. We don't have that kind of sin threshold. Pretty soon we're going to succumb, we're going to give in, and we're going to sin. But not Jesus. Jesus was touched with the feeling of our infirmities. To he had no set of valve. He had no reaching a point where he couldn't take anymore. Jesus took all that hell could throw at him, yet without sin. He's a perfect person. He's a perfect person uh, and he's a perfect priest. But then I want you to know that he has perfect provisions. The Bible says because he's a priest, uh, because he's Jesus, the son of God, because uh, he can be touched with the feeling of our infirmities and has been tempted in all points such as we have. Now we can come boldly unto the throne of grace. You ought to have some confidence to hold on to your profession. You ought to have some confidence, ladies and gentlemen, in the fact that your hope, your faith, your trust, and your confidence really can be put in the God of eternal salvation. I don't mean any harm today, brethren, but I'm so glad that my salvation is not dependent upon your opinion. I'm so glad that my salvation is not dependent on your view. I'm so glad that my salvation is not dependent on whether you like me or whether you don't like me. And I would say to any round-eyed, slope-shouldered, two-legged, put his pants on one leg at a time, man, that you are not a monarch, you're king. And the reason why I know you are not a monarch is because you can't be a king and a subject at the same time and if you in the kingdom you can't be the king over the king we have a great high priest
priest who is touched with the feeling of our infirmities. I thank God. I thank the God of my salvation that I can go to him and I can go to him with boldness. I don't have to be made to feel ashamed. I don't have to be embarrassed. I don't have to feel like I'm not being spiritual and I'm not being holy. I can go boldly onto the throne of grace to ask him for mercy and to ask him for grace. You see, only God knows when I need mercy. Sometimes I think I need grace, but what I need is mercy. God says, Shabazz, I see to it that you don't get what you should have got. I know folk think that you should have got it, but I'm going to see to it that you get mercy. Sometimes I go asking for mercy, and God says, mercy is not what you need. You need some unmerited favor, and I'm going to see to it that you get what you don't even deserve. I thank God I can go boldly unto the throne of grace in my time of need and he is a perfect high priest, a great perfect high priest passed through the heaven set down next to God. I can come boldly to the throne when I need his help. He's not a high priest. He's a great high priest. There ain't a man alive today that don't need some of this. I said there ain't a man alive that don't need some of this. And I want to tell you that somewhere between the age of accountability and death, you need to hear the gospel. You need to hear the gospel because if a man don't stand for something, he gonna fall for anything. And you're not smart enough to do what you don't know. So you need to hear the gospel. Romans 10 verse number 17, you need to believe it because there's enough foolishness out there already. And so you ought to get the fundamental core conviction in Christ. You need to believe the gospel, not liberalism or humanism or secular humanism or hedonism or all of the ignorance and foolishness that the professors are waiting to teach you when you get to the institutions of high learning. This preacher is telling you believe of Jesus. Believe the gospel. Hebrews eleven six. 6 repent of your sins and if you don't repent of your sins you keep doing what you always did. You're just going to get what you always got. You, you, you got to at some time you got to change and repent of your sin. Acts seventeen thirty. confess your belief in Jesus as the son of God buried in the liquid tomb of baptism. I'm going to the tomb of baptism because when y'all talk about me I can tell folk I don't care what you say I'm covered in the blood y'all go on and talk about me I'm covered in the blood you might not like what I'm doing that's all right I'm covered in the blood I might have stumbled fallen felt but I'm covered in the blood go on out in the hallway gossip about me I'm covered in the blood go on and tell folk what you want to tell folk I'm covered in the blood keep me out of gospel meetings I'm covered in the blood. Keep me off of the night. I'm covered in the blood. No matter what man says, no matter what man does, no matter where man goes, you need some of this. I'm covered. So I want to invite you to Jesus. I want to invite you to come from wherever you are. We have a high priest who can be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. He knows about all your trouble. And so when I, I know it's a lectureship, but I'm gonna ask you to come to Jesus. Amen. I'm gonna ask you to come to the Messiah. 
I wish I had time to go through Mark 1.1. It's probably one of the few places, a few places in the New Testament where we have the identities of Jesus holistically. He is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Jesus, that's his human name. Christ, that's his messianic name. And uh, then the Son of God of God, the Son, that's his divine name. I love y'all, but Jesus is all I need. 